I ask you to turn in your Bibles to John's first letter, John's first letter towards the very back of your Bibles. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 1023, 1023. First John chapter 4, our focus will be on verses 7 to 21. I want to mention that in our church, we still practice uh, house visits from our elders once a year. We uh, like to do that to keep our elders in touch with their shepherding groups. And uh, it is a good way for us to just stay in touch with our people. And this is the passage that we've been assigned for this year. And so just to give you a little background, sometime at the beginning of each new year, I like to use that passage. And so here we are, beginning of a new year. First John chapter four, beginning in verse seven, this is the word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the expression of love that your word is to us, pointing us always most clearly to that perfect expression of love, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins, and that willing atonement that Jesus made for our sins. Lord, as we explore this passage this morning and tonight, 
Lord, we ask that you would help us to see more clearly just how great your love is for sinners like us. But also that you would help us to know more clearly what it means to love one another. So speak to us now, we pray, as you've spoken to us through the reading of your word, now through the preaching of your word. Send your Holy Spirit in a special way. Help the preacher, help all of us who will hear, as we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning I want to address God's love for us and in the evening express our response or address our response to his love. Uh, They're so intertwined in our passage that I'm going to use the very same passage this evening that I'm using this morning. Uh, We jump into the fourth chapter of John's letter. He's already mentioned love directly 14 times. Uh, In chapter 3 alone, I believe, 10 times. And so love is the thrust of this whole letter. I remember when I was learning how to write One of my English teachers said, try not to use the same word over and over again. But here, John can't help it. His topic is love. His topic is agape love. And he uses the word over and over again in this short little letter, especially in chapter 3 and here in verse 4 as well. Agape love. F.F. Bruce, the commentator, describes it this way. Love is a consuming passion For the well-being of others, having its wellspring in God. A consuming passion for the well-being of others, having its wellspring in God. In this passage, we find twice the statement, God is love. And I think we're to understand that part of his very being, part of his attributes is love. Sadly, our confession, our catechism, when it lists the attributes of God, does not use Love, maybe because it's so all-encompassing, so profound, so wide and so deep and so broad, and it kind of encompasses so much of who God is, but John simply says God is love. He also says love is of God. Matthew Henry puts it this way, he said, he is the fountain author, parent, and commander of love. This morning we're dealing with God's love for us, and I want to make it clear that most of the things that I'll describe in the passage this morning and as we look at different passages apply to those who are in Christ, those who are truly God's children through faith in Christ. But I'm going to admit right away that this topic is so deep and so intense that I'm going to tell you that I'm in a way over my head and overwhelmed. How do you begin to plunge the depths of God's love? How do you begin to to rein in the intensity of God's love? You You simply can't do it. But if I were going to describe what my hope is through these two sermons, it's found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. If you want to turn there, Paul is praying for them. And he's very specific in his prayer. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Here's the prayer. That according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he breaks into doxology. But that's my desire, that you would begin, that we would begin, I'm sure we understand it to some degree, but more and more to embrace, to understand, to bask in the love of God. Not only today through this sermon, but through the coming year, this would be an appropriate prayer for the people of our congregation. So this morning, God's love toward us. Anytime we think of that, it should cause us to pause and to cherish that truth every day. Because the fact that God loves us is utterly amazing. Utterly amazing. Even before the fall, when God created Adam and Eve for his glory, his love towards them was condescending. He's infinite, eternal God, and they're his creatures. So even before sin came into the world, God's love was profoundly condescending. But then, as we all sadly know, sin entered the world and we became depraved. And so God's love for us in that respect is even more amazing. But what is this, what is this love of God? So we begin to even understand it. I think the closest we can come to it in our human limitations is, is to go deepen ourselves and understand the deepest affections that we have towards another person. That's as far deep as we can go and try to understand at least in, in a tiny bit of our experience of loving others what God's love is. His is full. His is profound. His is perfect. His is infinite. Some, some deep, super feeling and affection. It's got to be there. I can't explain it. When we think about what God does for us, and the more we look into what God does for us, we have to realize that behind it is some, some movement towards us, and so his love is in action. And the more we understand his actions towards us, the more we recognize how undeserving we are of his love entirely undeserved. If you can tell me, if you can tell me, except for the fact that by virtue of being his creation, created in his image, why God loves you, please fill me in. It's inexplicable. It's condescending, and it is effective. Remember, sin has rendered us very unlovely. It's not because we are lovely that God loves us. No, we're sinners. And when sin entered the world, we became distorted. By our very nature, we're not lovers of God. We are enemies to God. Rebellion against him. Even the nicest person you know, if they're, they're not in Christ, if they're not a new creature in creature in Christ, they're in rebellion against God. And, and I think that sometimes we don't really grasp the astounding nature of God's love for us because we don't really understand the ugliness of depravity. 
I don't think we really understand or recognize the ugliness and the darkness of our sin. But it's in contrast to that that God's love is so beautiful. It's fair to say that God loves us despite ourselves. Which is, I think, and I trust you think as well, immensely humbling. It's immensely humbling. gets more intense when we think about how he expresses his love. Again, love in action. And I, and I think we need to understand love that way, that love is not, not just emotion, it's not just feelings, it's not just affections, it certainly is that, but behind, it's behind those things are behind actions. And so love is in action. So God shows his love by sustaining and providing, but most profoundly in redeeming us. He provides for all his creation. So in that sense, I suppose we can say that God still does love his creation. He sends the rain on the wicked and the righteous. He makes provision for his creation, daily care, everyone in creation. However, his love his profound saving love is focused on his people alone. And the expression of that love is found throughout Scripture. It's expressed here in verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. There is one motive, maybe two, when we think about God's saving us. The first one is his glory. God has every right to promote his own glory. He's God. But the second one, the second motive, is simply love. And again, who can explain that? Who can explain that? Begin to think about what's behind God's actions in providing us salvation the way that he provided for us. What, what motion was going on there? I think there's something missing if we think that the Father sending his Son is a simple calculation designed to save. And if we, we think that there's not some, some deep gravity of what we might call emotion or affection in giving his son as a sacrificial offering that he makes willingly himself, that he doesn't have some investment in that, some motion in that, I think we're missing something. He certainly has what we might call feelings for us if he provided salvation for us in this way, sending his only son. But here's how it's displayed. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, takes on human flesh and dies for sinners like us. Sounds so simple, but can there be anything more extraordinary, profound than that? Jesus himself put it this way, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends, and he's first applying it to himself. 
In verse 10, there's a word there that jumps out at us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. How do we understand something like propitiation? It's it's averting the wrath of God by, by an offering or a sacrifice. It's God's plan. The Council of the Trinity's plan to save us this way. perfect, willing sacrifice of Christ to absorb the wrath that we deserve in order to divert it from us. Seems unfair. Indeed it is. Sinless Christ dying for me. Sinless Christ dying for you. Such a death. With depths of spirit and soul that we can't even begin to understand. Whenever you come across this word propitiation, and you only will four times in your New Testament, think of the cross. Go to the cross. There is a real perplexity in propitiation. There's a real perplexity in substitution. We sing about it a lot. We just mentioned three songs. This one by Isaac Watts, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done? He groaned upon the tree, amazing pity. Grace unknown and love beyond degree. Wesley will sing this after describing so many of the wonderful things of salvation and understanding that it's the second person of the Trinity in human flesh that died has us sing over and over again, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? A newer song, Stuart Townend, we sing this one. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Was it my sin that held him there until it was accomplished? His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was my sin that held him there. We had someone, and I actually like what they said. I don't don't make a habit of changing other people's words in their songs. But they said to me after the service, shouldn't it be it was his love that held me there? Certainly both are true. It was my sin. It was his love for a sinner like me that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And it keeps getting better. He doesn't just save us. Which sounds crazy. Doesn't just save us. I mean, the most precious thing we have is our salvation. 
the redemption of our souls, reconciled to our creator God, but it gets better, he makes us his children. He adopts us as his very own children. Earlier, John in this very letter says, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. His own children. Think about your children. And if you don't have children, think about the, the person or people that you love the dearest in your life. Think about what they mean to you. Think about what you do for them. Think about what you would do for them. I think that for the people that you love the most, you would certainly give your life for them, I trust. You would provide for them. You would keep them. You would protect them. But I'm sure that you would, within any power that you had, you would never let them go, would you? You'd never let them go. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul understood this. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And he keeps us and he protects us. Applying these things to us, keeping us ultimately from our greatest enemy, the devil, keeping us from haters, keeping us from ourselves sometimes. One aspect of God's love is discipline. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 6. Up a little bit. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And I'll just end there because he goes on. But God disciplines us in his love. In his love. It's one aspect of his love for us. However it comes about, remember this, that when we're being disciplined, it is always for his glory, ultimately, but also for the good of our own selves. God's discipline is never, never vindictive. It's never venting. God really can say, this is for your own good. This is for your own good. It's the deepest kind of parental love. It's got the child's best interest in mind. Well, finally, God's love, understood and experienced, is transforming. We've already touched on some of those things, but it's transforming. Making us into lovers of God. Making us into lovers of our neighbors like his son. 
tonight, I hope, Lord willing, to address our response to the love of God. And that's our love for him, and that's our love for our neighbor. We'll never achieve perfect love for either God or each other, but by grace, we actively cultivate it, and we'll address that more tonight. But without God's love and without understanding God's love, we really, really don't know what love is. We really don't. By his grace, may love be cherished by you and by this church. And by his grace, may his love be imitated by us and by this church and extended to all those around us. Let's pray. Merciful and mighty God, we thank you for your love. Certainly something that is beyond our comprehension, and yet at the very same time you've made so tangible for us by sending your Son to die in our place. And then revealing that truth to us through your Holy Spirit transforming our lives and making us through your son and through the spirit of adoption, your very own children. It's no wonder we're so perplexed, so humbled by your love, but we cherish it and we praise you for it. And we come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen.